much here, but uh, it sounds as if a war with Iran and Pakistan, or at least Iran, is being very, very seriously considered. And uh, I watch that more than I do some things because it does seem that there may be a tie-in there very clearly with Daniel 8 and Iran having their horn broken, the other horn of Medo-Persia, Iraq already having suffered that, but it appears that we're determined to nudge and push at the Islamic world until there is great reaction. Uh, And if I look at Daniel 8 right after we attack Iran and break their horn, ours will shortly thereafter be broken. So this is something to watch that uh, may have great portent for Americans and the rest of the world, for that matter, as well. All right, I think enough of that. Let's get back to the book of Psalms. I uh, left off there at the end of the feast, end of chapter 24, and I want to pick it up again. You might remember that the first and even the second division of the book of Psalms is about the difficulties in life. Uh, David was very well able to write these because he faced all kinds of difficulties, trials and troubles and enemies in his life. And then, of course, it equates to Christ himself, who was born into a world of trouble, of war, of Slavery, of, uh, of uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess I'm getting really old. Uh, occupation by the Roman uh, government and so on. So, he had difficulties throughout life. I remember, he was a man of sorrows for the most part. And even though... His enemies were there for a short while, and we tend to think of the time around his crucifixion. Remember that he was looked upon as a fatherless child all his life. And not only did he bear the burdens of having to live in this world with people who were against him from his birth forward, he also carried the burden of mankind from Adam on down through today, because it's a continuing sacrifice. And I think sometimes we think of him more uh, in terms of his crucifixion and how he carried our sins at that time. But there are many scriptures in here who, which indicate sin, and they might not in that sense equate directly to Christ since he did not ever sin. David did, however, and he wrote from the first person singular about himself, But we need to understand that our Savior, all through His life, not just at His crucifixion, was carrying the weight of our sin. He was carrying the burden of mankind. And all that mankind has done evil and wrong was around Him as He grew up and all through His life. And He had to go through... Everything that we see around us today in the modern Roman Empire, in the original one, and not be a part of it, not uh, accept it, but reject it all his life. And that even as a child, 
he had to always do right. He always had to be a good kid, if you will. So the troubles, the tribulations, and the difficulties of these earlier chapters of Psalm are about his life as well as the life of David and about the life of us. If you read on down uh, there in Matthew 7 where Terry is reading from in the sermonette, verse 12 says, This is the law and prophets that you love one another. Now, we can go back into the Old Testament, but Christ is telling us right there. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to His disciples. He was telling them to seek and to knock and to look and search for God. Not necessarily the world as a whole at this time, though certainly that will be applicable in the millennium and the great white throne judgment when a call is made and He knocks on their door. But when he tells us to knock, he's talking to the church. So he said, all the law and the prophets were written that you, and he was speaking to the disciples, might love one another. So there at the very foundation of the New Testament church, he said, the law and the prophets applies to you. So when we say the Bible was written to the church, We need to put some of those scriptures with it to understand that that is exactly the case. That all these things written in the Old Testament, including these Psalms, were written down specifically with the New Testament church in mind. Consider that ancient Israel never did really obey God, and even though they went into a marriage situation with Christ... They never had their heart in it. They never truly obeyed. They would give lip service and do their own thing. So it's a new beginning when he begins to instruct his disciples in the New Testament as their teacher and the chief cornerstone of the church. And he immediately, in the first instructive lesson, says, that the whole purpose of the Law and Prophets is that you might love one another. Amazing, isn't it? People think of prophecy, they think in terms of all the dire things that are to come. They think of the timing of certain events. And to people who do not consider the deeper side of it, that is what they consider. So when you study prophecy, they say... You're studying end-time events and when and how they will happen. No. If you study prophecy properly, you will see in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Psalms, because it truly is a book of prophecy, that the whole purpose is to teach us to love one another. It's the whole purpose. Quit treating each other shabbily. And in so doing, we fulfill the purpose of the law and prophets. All the dire things and how and when they will happen are only because we don't pay attention to the message of the prophets. To repent and love one another. I touched this on this in a Bible study recently back in the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth, Luke, I mean. 
where we recounted the story of Christ when he was in with a group of people and his physical mother and brothers and sisters were outside. And a message was brought to him that his mother and his siblings wanted to see him. They wanted to be with him. They had either wanted to visit with or be around him. Whatever they had in mind, they wanted his attention at that time. And he looked at those who were in the room who were seeking spiritual understanding and knowledge and healing and to be with the Messiah, with the Savior. And he dismissed his physical family and said, These are my family. I know we have read that, and we have touched on that before. But I made a point then, which I would like to bring forth to all of us. Many were at work and various things that evening in that Bible study. And that is that we here together of many different families, of many different backgrounds, many different geographical areas gathered together should love each other more, should seek each other more than we do our physical families. Do we grasp that? Now we can say you can have friends, but blood is thicker than water. That's a common expression. Blood is thicker than water. So we will come back to our physical family, those blood relatives. Well, we all here are blood relatives if you go back far enough. Every last one of us. No matter what race, no matter where we come from, we're all part of the human race. But I don't want to generalize this. I want it to be specific. The Spirit of God should be thicker than physical blood. We should draw closer to each other right here than we are to our physical families. In fact, he says that we are to be willing to give up our physical families and come and follow him and that the people that he has called into his body, his spirit, to become the bride of Christ are to be closer together than any physical blood. We have to be willing to give up father, mother, brother, sister, our physical family, to come and follow him and to be working together in a marriage process toward the wedding of the Lamb. Physical families fight among themselves. Spiritual members of the family fight among themselves. But we are to get over that and become peacemakers rather than warmongers. And if we get rifts and problems and difficulties between us, we are duty-bound to overcome those and to be closer than physical family.
Do we grasp this? The Spirit is thicker than blood. I think that should be self-evident from the Scriptures, but it's easy to forget and ignore, and it's easy for us to split and to divide and to have attitudes about one another, and yet the whole message of the Law and the Prophets is that we love one another. We have to do that. So I don't want to dive into the book of Psalms today without a preface, without an introduction, if you will, that we are spinning our wheels, we are doing no good, and we might as well get up and walk out of here and never come back if we do not take these things that we're about to read personally and vow to do something about it. Reading an instruction book on how to assemble anything does you no good unless you actually follow the directions. So what we are going to address today is about personal relationships and learning to love one another. That's what the whole Law and Prophets is about. So as we read these various things, the trials, the troubles, the tribulations in these first two uh, sections of Psalms, let's realize that we should not think it strange, the fiery troubles and trials that come upon us, because they go all the way back. And the difficulties that we address here in the Psalms, the first two sections particularly, uh, are an echo from the past of what we are dealing with. Things David dealt with, things Christ dealt with, things that every human being who has ever walked has dealt with. There's nothing unusual, there's nothing different about our trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, Sometimes they may seem overwhelming. Sometimes it seems God is not hearing. But that's what these first two sections are about. They are to show us how life would be. And they show us how to deal with it. Because they get better as we progress through these 150 chapters. And toward the end, it's more encouraging but here at the beginning, it's difficult. And you will notice a pattern that the psalmist will talk about trials, troubles, and difficulties and how burdensome they are. And then he will turn and say, but you, O God, and begin to look up to God and to praise Him and to look to Him for answers. In other words, to knock, as we heard in the sermonette. So you'll see that pattern repeated over and over through here. It's not that it tells us we will not have trouble. It's telling us we shall and do have trouble. And then it tells us what to do about it. And then if we do what's right, as we go further through the book, things get better. So let's pick it up then in chapter 25. Unto you, O Eternal, do I lift up my soul. 
O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph o'er me. So I have enemies. They are trying to destroy me. Satan and his demons would love to destroy us. And I think they've been very active before and since the feast. Jerking people's chains. Working on their attitudes. And I think we need to draw near to God and not be double-minded but draw near to one another in a spirit of unity and cooperation and love and not let our human nature get the best of us. Don't let our enemies triumph over us. And we are not enemies against each other here, are we? We're here to dwell together as brethren, as sisters in the Spirit, which again is thicker than water, or is supposed to be. Yes, let none that wait on you be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. He's saying, look, seems like the righteous or those who are trying to obey God have troubles. And you have those who are sinning who do not as much in some respects. Well, they don't because they don't recognize it and try to fight it. They just go with the flow. In some ways, it's easier than it is with us. So he says, show me your ways, O Eternal. Teach me your paths. We sing this one pretty regularly. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day. So I may have enemies, may have troubles, may have difficulties, but here's the answer to that. Remember, O Eternal, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they've always been there. They've been there ever of old. There are times in history he has become very upset before Noah's flood, when they came out of Egypt and immediately began to gripe and grumble and complain as soon as they crossed the sea. But his loving kindness always overrode his anger and his frustration. Now, he is angry and frustrated, A, with the world, or may, maybe I should say that, A, with the church, and B, with the world, because the church comes first. So we have put ourselves through a lackadaisical attitude the same way that the people did before Noah and in the days of Abraham and Moses, but there is a solution to it. So, being led in His truth and His paths is the answer to turning His face to us. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember you, me, for your goodness' sake, O Eternal. Well, Christ did not have sins of His youth, did He? And yet, He carried our sins, even as a youth, because He knew He was to be the Savior, that He could not do wrong, that even as a child he carried that heavy burden. So, did he have sins in his youth? Yes. Ours, not his. He carried that burden from childhood. So he's speaking as high priest for us, as he speaks through David here, about himself and about us. Good and upright is the eternal, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. 
These are the very things Christ taught, beginning in that first instruction on the mountain. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He went right back here to begin his New Testament teaching. All the paths of the eternal are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O eternal, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that fears the eternal? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So if you begin to fear him enough to keep his commandments and to follow his directions then He is going to teach you the way that you should choose and the way that God chooses. His soul shall dwell at ease and His seed shall inherit the earth. So verse 9 says He'll teach the meek His ways and then He completes the thought here in verse 13, they'll inherit the earth. Same as in Matthew 5. The secret of the eternal is with them that fear Him. God's way, as Herbert Armstrong put it, is a mystery. Mankind does not understand why he is on this earth. We're here to become God, to rule the universe with God, starting with this earth. So it's a secret that only a few understand, only a few know. Secret, mystery, put it either way, it still works. He is not going to show his secrets to any who do not begin to follow him in fear. He will show them his covenant. His covenant is of life everlasting. His covenant is for blessing everlasting. And when we come across the truth, if we will fear him enough to begin to put aside the ways of this world and begin to obey Him, then He shows us His covenant. He leads us down the path toward baptism and walking His way and fulfilling that covenant. My eyes are ever toward the eternal, for He shall pluck my feet out of the net. That emphasizes that our feet do get tangled up, but if we look up always, He will help us untangle our feet. So when life gets to be a tangle, as it does sometimes, and we have different currents and feelings and emotions and difficulties in our lives, what do we do? We look up. We look to Him for solutions. Because He's the only one that can pick us up out of the net. They trap animals in nets. And when they get in a net, they're helpless. They can't do a thing. Their feet, their wings, their mouths, whatever, depending on what they are, all get caught in the net, and they're prey. We're the same in this world. So look up. Turn you to me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. A plea to God. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Lots of troubles. O oh, bring you me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. So when we look to God when we're in trouble, we ask for forgiveness, for mercy, so that He can bless us. It's hard to bless somebody who 
is filled with sin. So we ask for forgiveness of our sin, so that we are then sinless instead of sinful. Each time we pray and God forgives our sins, we're washed white of the sin. And then He can deal with us. That's why we have to ask essentially daily. Consider my enemies, verse 19, for they are many, and they that hate me with cruel hatred. We too have an entire world of now about 7 billion people who are going the exact opposite direction that we are trying to walk. And there are perhaps millions of demons that we do not even see who are affecting those people and who will do everything they can to affect our lives and our attitudes and to draw us away from God. So our enemies are seen and unseen. We fight spiritual wickedness in high places. We are not often aware of that, but it is there. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. No, if we fail miserably at what we're trying to do, then we're going to be ashamed. So the plea here is, don't let me fail. Help me succeed. Help me do what you called me here to do. So that I won't be ashamed and so that God can be glorified that He took the weak and the base, the nothings, and turned them into something glorious. So it is all to the glory of God that we repent and change and not be put to shame because He's our Father and He can save us from shame if we turn to Him in the way that He wishes and the way that we need. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. We walk in integrity. We walk in uprightness. It is a preservation. It does Give us shelf life, if you will. It is the kind of preservative a human being needs. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So this is personal, written by David. But he takes a wider view. Just as Christ told us, pray our Father, not my Father. That we are to include all of our brethren in the spiritual family when we pray. So here he broadens it from my troubles to our troubles. Deliver Israel. And really the only one we can pray for now is spiritual Israel, right? Because Jeremiah tells us very clearly, don't even pray for the people in this world and in this nation. It will do you no good. They will not repent. They are stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, And they will continue to sin until the captivity occurs. So don't even waste your breath, God says. But now for spiritual Israel, our brethren in the church, we're to pray daily for them and address God in terms of our, not us and them, or I'll pray for these but not those. We're all in this together all the different parts of the body together, and we are to become unified and harmonious 
and work together, each and every one of us, closely. Closer than a physical family. It's what this group right here is supposed to be. Much closer than a physical family. Now chapter 26. <clears throat> Judge me, O Eternal, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted also in the Eternal, therefore I shall not slide. Now that could be the words of Christ directly. David could hope for that, but he didn't always live up to it. Christ did. But we all should put ourselves in the position that we could say, Judge me, O Lord, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Wouldn't it be nice if we could always approach God that way? <laughs> but it seems we rarely can. It seems I come to Him more in forgive me a sinner than I do and judge me and see my integrity. Um, that's, a, that's a tough one. Examine me, O Eternal, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Now there, he uses the analogy of a horse. If you get on a horse, you try it, you see if it will obey, you turn it right, you turn it left, you might back it up, you might kick it forward. You see if it will go the direction that you ask it to go, if it is of a willing mind and heart. And it is a joy to get on and ride that kind of horse. Now, I've been on some knot-headed ones that won't do anything I want them to do, and that is not a pleasure at all. They have their own mind, they take the bit in their teeth, and they're going to do what they want to do no matter what. And you have to get pretty tough with them sometimes in order to make them do what you say. It's not easy. So he says, check me like you would a horse. Try my reins. See if I'll turn and I'll go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do. And since we are from stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn ancestors, our hearts have to be changed. They have to be humbled and become meek, teachable, and willing. And by nature, we are not that way. For your loving kindness is before my eyes that I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers or rebels, those who speak negatively, in other words. Dissemblers isn't a common word in the English language, but those who would disassemble or do not want to assemble together in peace, but want to rebel and go their way and have their own attitude, and you're not going to change my attitude. That hurts a group. It hurts a church. So don't go with them. Don't listen to them. It's a strange thing, is it not, that we tend to be like a moth to the flame? Sometimes I'll have all the lights in the house off except my computer screen or in, the, in my room. And every fruit fly and every moth and anything that's there comes to the light. Now, they're kind of headed for sure death. 
Because if I have, I have a little finger there that can smack them on the screen and kill them. But they come as if they're mesmerized. They have to be in the light of that computer screen. So we have a little war there. It seems sometimes that we as human beings can be so curious, so drawn to any who will dissemble, who will rebel against, who will talk negative. And I don't know, are our ears kind of tuned to negative as opposed to positive? We hear good news and wonderful, wonderful but somebody says they have some bad news or they got something, you know, so-and-so did such-and-such, pow, that'll pull your ear right around. Are we a moth to the flame? Human beings, by and large, like to talk negative about others for what a plethora of reasons, and there are many, so we won't go into that today. But we tend to like to hear negativity about other people. We tend to go to it. And yet, he says he will not go with those who dissemble. Somebody has a bad attitude, it seems like we want to hear. If there's a wolf among the sheep, in sheep's clothing perhaps, doesn't appear to be a wolf, wearing limb skin over the fur, But there's teeth there because they're going to be talking negative. And how many times have we said, don't listen. Tell them I don't want to hear it. And yet, something in us just cries to hear it. So he's saying here, I won't go there. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Is negativity wicked? Yes, it is. We are not to listen to it, to sit with it, to hear it. I will wash my hands in innocency. He's giving us New Testament teaching here. I'm not going to listen to the wicked. I'm not going to listen to negativity. I am going to hear what is good, and I will be innocent. Ears that listen to wickedness, negativity, are not innocent ears. They are not innocent ears. We need innocent ears. So will I compass your altar, O Eternal. I'll come to you with innocent ears. That I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. So instead of sitting with those who will talk negative, go to God and speak of his wondrous works. It's hard to be negative when you're speaking of all the works of God the creation around us, what He's done to help people in the past, to deliver them, how He's 
taken our minds from the ways of this world and begun to transform them into what they're supposed to be. So many wondrous works are there to be talked about rather than, yep, 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 yep. Remember the law and the prophets is that we love one another. This comes back to that time after time after time. He pounds on it through all the Old Testament. And then he gets a new audience calls them out from being fishermen and taxpayers and says, will you listen? Nobody else ever has. Will you guys listen? Will you be converted from that and be different and love one another? That didn't happen right away, did it? They fought among themselves. They compared themselves among themselves. They tried to get him to proclaim who was the greatest, who should be ordained first, or whether somebody else was trying to climb the ladder, or whatever we experienced in worldwide, they experienced back then. Verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your honor dwells. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men. If you went on there in James 4, where the sermonette was, it talked about how anyone who is a friend of this world is the enemy of God. That's echoed in 1 John, but it's mentioned in James as well, right there in the context we were reading. Don't let your soul be gathered with the sinners. Now, whether it's spiritual blood that we shed with each other by stabbing each other in the back, or whether it's physical blood, makes no difference. In fact, the spiritual blood shed from among us is worse than shedding physical blood when you get right down to it. Physical blood is just physical life, right? Out in the world, there are a lot of people who are shedding physical blood today. But to shed the spiritual blood of one of God's called out ones that's supposed to be a part of the kingdom of God to rule the earth? The magnitude of sin there is far greater than physical murder. Murdering one who has already been called to become a spirit and has only one chance and we offend and hurt and bleed them spiritually, there is no comparison of how much worse that is. That's just a fact. But we do it so easily. The knife slides out of our mouth and into their back, just like that. So don't gather my soul with sinners and my life with bloody men, in whose hand is mischief and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. I'm not going to go that way, the psalmist says. I'm going to walk in integrity instead. I will not shed the blood of God's people. My foot stands in an even place, and the congregation will I bless the eternal. We are to, supposed to have 
an even place here. Now, you've undoubtedly walked in some pretty rough places in your life where it would be very easy to dash your foot against a stone, very easy to step in a hole and sprain your ankle or break your leg, especially in the dark. But even in the daytime, there are some rocky, treacherous places where you have to be very, very careful. There's a lot of them around here in the mountains and the rocks where you better be careful how you ride or how you walk because you can get hurt very easily. You can fall. But here we are to stand in a secure, even place. A place where we will not get hurt, where we will not stumble and fall because the path is level and safe. In the congregation will I bless the eternal. So you and I have a responsibility here, a command, if you will, to make this place a place that is smooth and unhurtful and there is no danger of turning a spiritual ankle, becoming bitter, opposed, angry, frustrated, having to deal with negativity. But we are to build a place here that throughout... And with every member, no matter what part of the body they are, now you may have some particular name for some certain ones that are less appealing parts of the body, I don't know. And others you may like better and think that they have a more appealing place in the body. But he says there in James again, if we went back there, let's go back to James 4. I keep going back to the sermonette. He had his purposes in reading what he did, but I cheated and wrote, read on down. Verse 11 of James 4. Here he's talking in verse 10 about humbling ourselves in the sight of the eternal and he will lift us up. And that's exactly what we were reading there in, in Psalm 25. Then he says in verse 11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren, he that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law. Your brother is trying to obey the law. And if you speak evil of them, you're speaking evil of God's law. Just as God told Samuel, they don't despise you, Samuel. It's me. It's me, really, that they hate. It's just shown to you. And judges the law. But if you judge the law, then are you not a doer of the law, but a judge? So if we put ourselves in the position of judging one another and speaking evil one of another and making that judgment that I am in a position where I can say something evil or bad about somebody. Now, why you place yourself in that position could have a multitude of reasons. But the point is, we are not to speak evil one of another. And if we do, we're judging the law. And whose law is it? It's God's law. So when we... Now get this, Daryl. 
and the rest of you, get this. When we speak evil one of another, we are speaking evil of God. That's what he says. You're judging the law and the lawgiver. And we're not hating Samuel or whoever we are directing our comments about. We are hating God. Now, if there's any of that in our hearts, we need to, post-haste, get it out and not compare ourselves among ourselves and determine who is and who is not evil or that we can speak evil about. We need a level playing field that is safe to walk about and know that you're not going to fall and get hurt within. That needs to be this congregation. Now, can we work together to produce that? Let's take personal responsibility to make this a safe place to walk where no one will turn an ankle. Otherwise, we're hearers and not doers, as he says there in James 4. Let's go to chapter 27 of Psalms then. The Eternal, the Lord, is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? It doesn't say then, that's the way the song is written. Whom shall I fear? The Eternal is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. That happened with Christ in his life. They killed him, but he lived. They wound up stumbling and falling in the grave, did they not? And he told them there at the end of chapter 23 of Matthew, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you bless those who come in the name of the Lord. So the Jewish nation, physically, he has cast aside and has nothing to do with them because they have denied the Lord who bought all mankind. And even the ones who are messianics also deny him because they've accepted Protestant rather than godly doctrine. So it is in name only that they accept him, not in obedience. So they have fallen. Now we are called to rise. Spiritual Israelites, to do it different. Isn't it interesting, if you go to the end of Matthew 23, where it says that, then the very next chapter, Matthew 24, the disciples came and asked him what all these things would be, and he addressed them directly. So he says, I'm putting away physical Israel, specifically the Jews there, and he addressed and told the disciples, those who would form the nucleus of the New Testament church, the way things would be. And Matthew 24 Luke 21 is a sister chapter, come right down to us. And the end time.
So he set them aside, and now he's talking to you and me. That should be an encouragement, really. And yet at the same time, it carries with it a great responsibility, doesn't it? But he's talking to us. And he expects us, as along with those in the early New Testament church, to succeed in his covenant. He expects us to do that and to become part of the 144,000 Bride of Christ. When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, it doesn't matter how many come against us, my heart shall not fear. Now that's what he tells the end-time church that is to build his temple. Fear not, be of good courage, be strong, and work. Those four things he tells us several times. It's right back here. My heart shall not fear. The war should rise against me. In this will I be confident. It doesn't matter. This nation is going to be militarily destroyed very soon. And we are going to be in it. He tells us there in Micah 4 to get out of the cities of Babylon, but to stay in Babylon. So we're to stay in this nation, but we're not to be in the middle of it. We're to get out and dwell in the open spaces. There's where he will protect his people. So it doesn't matter. They will not be allowed to hurt those who are doing his end-time work. I want us all to be included in that. And it isn't very far off. One thing have I desired of the eternal. That will I seek after. It kind of boils it down here. Here's what I'm after. That I may dwell in the house of the eternal all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the eternal and to inquire in his temple. That's what our whole purpose in life is. It's spelled out for us here, is that we might dwell with and be a part of the kingdom of God, dwell in his temple, and behold the beauty of the eternal when he returns to take us as his bride. For in the time of trouble... Okay, before that happens, there's trouble coming. He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. There are other places, many of them in the Psalms, which we'll get to, especially as we go on through further, where he talks about Zion, the mountain of God, where he will hide his people. They will there be a refuge. Zion can mean the church, as per Hebrews 12:22 and 3. Or it can also be the physical location. And really, he is referring to both when you understand it. So he's referring here not only to his troubles in life, but to ours. The troubles that we face in life, but also the end time protection in his pavilion. And he'll set me upon a rock. The mountains of Zion, as well as Christ the rock the living rock. It is very interesting that 
the Virgin River in Mount Zion flows right out of solid rock. Big hole in the rock, and the river comes right out of the rock, above the ground, not like a spring, but right out of the rock. Comes a symbol, symbolism of living waters flowing from Christ the rock. It's a beautiful thing to see. Verse 6, And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. Not sacrifices of animals, but of joy. That when all this trouble comes, we'll be hidden, protected, taken care of, and have joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Eternal. Hear, O Eternal, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. Reminds me, which we've mentioned several times, he says not to give him any rest until he does these things. That's about Isaiah 55, somewhere right in there. Not to give him any rest, but to be after him day in and day out to cause these things to happen. Uh, Verse 8, When you said, Seek you my face, my heart said to you, Thy face, eternal, will I seek. We want His face to look upon us. But we've seen in several of the prophecies in Isaiah and other places that He has now turned His face from the church, that we were so pathetic that He couldn't stand to look at us. And now we are to be seeking His face. We want it to turn and smile. Not be angry anymore. Haven't we faced our parents in the past when they were angry? and We didn't like it a bit. We wanted to see them smile on us and offer us something nice. And that's the way we should be with our Father in heaven. Hear an answer when I call. When you said, Seek you my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not your face far from me. Put not your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. What did Christ say? I will never leave nor forsake you. It is not that He left and forsook the church. It's that we left and forsook Him with our material pursuits of various kinds, and we would not turn our face to Him, so He turned His face from us. It was not His fault. It was our our fault. He could not look upon us as we were. Therefore, if He is going to look upon us, we have to be different, don't we? We have to be different than what we were. Somehow, we have to far exceed whatever we were in Worldwide Church of God. Some of you are far too young to have really understood the dynamics of that, but it had become playing church, and we cannot play church. We are here to transcend human nature and to come to have the nature of God. And it does not come easy. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Eternal will take me up. Now, in a sense, remember how Paul spoke to some of the churches, 
as little children and put himself in the place of a father. Now, he was not doing that in disrespect of God. He called them little children in terms of him being older, perhaps, or more uh, knowledgeable of God's ways and an elder in that way. And he spoke of them as his little children in the church. So did the Apostle John. So he was not supplanting our Father in heaven, but he was treating them, as he told Timothy, to treat the members of the church. Treat the older ones as uh, fathers and mothers, the younger as brothers and sisters, and so on, in a family relationship. That's what we're supposed to have. So, our spiritual father in this age, Herbert Armstrong, who was used to call us for the most part, died on us, didn't he? As Micah 4 says, is your counselor dead? Uh, has your king perished? Or words to that effect. Yes. And we felt forsaken. And then somebody tried to lead us right off into Babylon immediately. And did much of the church. And my mother forsook me. So the church forsook us, didn't it? It went right off into Protestantism again. So our father died and our mother forsook us. Then the eternal will take me up. So what were we supposed to do when the church fell apart? Turn to God. That's what this whole thing was about. Turn to God. Remember Ezekiel 17 where it's speaking of Herbert Armstrong there and it says the roots all came toward him. And it was a low-spreading vine, not of great stature. We did not grow tall and upright the way we should have. But we became a low-lying bush with our roots and our limbs turned to Herbert Armstrong. And God said, no, worship me. So Herbert Armstrong was taken from us. And our mother, the church, was taken from us. And in so doing that, God was saying, grow up, be tall, be stately, be upright, turn to me. So when you find yourself in that position, verse 11, teach me your way, O eternal, and lead me in a plain path. There again, a flat way that we can see where to go and what to do because of my enemies, those who would lead us astray like Tkachas tried and others. Make it plain where we should go. And I think God has made that plain to us, hasn't He? He's answered this prayer in part, maybe not fully yet. We don't know all the things we need to do, but He's made it clear to us what we need to be doing in this period of time. Preparing the bride, getting ourselves ready, overcoming spiritually, coming to love one another and live together in unity and harmony without fighting and spats between us, but to put that all behind us and live together in harmony and peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. If there is this harmony, then it is a blessing of God through you to become 
a peacemaker. Now I'll tell you, peace does not always come easily. War, fighting, trouble, attitudes come easily. Peace has to be made. It has to be actively sought. We have to take initiative. We have to be aggressive to come to live in peace. Peacemakers. Peace creators. Because peace is not a natural state. Do we realize that? War is the natural state of human beings. We war and fight among ourselves again, as James 4 said. He wasn't speaking of physical war there. He was speaking of spiritual war. He was writing the scattered churches, not just scattered Israelites. Now, they may have been involved in physical wars, but it was the spiritual brethren that James was concerned about because of our own pride, egos, vanities, selfishness, Various lusts of the flesh create war. So he said, make peace. You have to go out of your house on a mission to create peace. It doesn't just happen. A plain path Lead me in that, where it's not fraught with trouble. We need, as it said earlier, verse 12 of chapter 26, the congregation needs to be a smooth, even, good place to walk. It's reiterated here. Deliver me not over unto the will of my enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the eternal in the land of the living. If it weren't for what we have ahead of us, we'd give up. But we have our hearts and our minds set on eternity, on the kingdom of God, when all men will live together in peace and harmony and prosperity. And if we didn't have that goal ahead, if we didn't have that hope, we would give up. And we need to see that hope in one another, to encourage one another and strengthen one another in that hope. Because that is what we need. Wait on the eternal. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. And then he emphasizes, wait, I say, on the eternal. Depend on him. Have patience. It doesn't all come immediately doesn't come easily, but put your trust and your hope in Him. As it's put in the New Testament, cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Well, let's cover 28 quickly. I've got about 20 minutes left scheduled. Don't have to fill it all up, but let's get one more here. Psalm 28, unto you will I cry, O eternal, my rock. So here he said he'll set you up on a rock in verse 5 of the previous chapter. And here he says, you are my rock. Be not silent to me. Don't ignore me. Lest if you be silent to me, 
I become like them that go down into the pit. It's okay to ask God for encouragement, for inspiration, for help, for good things to occur, to encourage us, because we can get discouraged very easily. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like them that go into the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy oracle, the words that you say. Draw me not away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, which speak peace to their neighbors, but mischief is in their hearts. Is what they're saying really what they mean? Are they being nice to our face, but in their heart there is war? How sincere are we? Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands. Render to them their desert, that which they have coming. Because they regard not the works of the Eternal, nor the operation of His hands, He shall destroy them and not build them up. So He's contrasting here one who will obey God and serve Him and the fate of those who will not. And this is within the will of God. Now, we're to love our enemies and do good to those that despitefully use us and persecute us. Yes. But at the same time, if people will not repent, ultimately, God will throw them in the lake of fire. There aren't many that are going to go there. I don't believe that for a moment. Because God is successful. There is not a war going on between God and Satan right now for the souls of the earth's people. He is only working with, God is only working with a few. And the rest have been turned over to Satan for the time being. God is not fighting that war. When he sets his hand to save the world, he's going to get the job done. That's all there is to it. He will be a successful father. The problem with the world we have around us is they don't regard the works of the eternal. Verse 6, Blessed be the Eternal, because He has heard the voice of my supplications. The Eternal is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart gladly rejoices, and with my song will I praise Him. So he says, we got troubles, we got enemies, we got difficulties. Let's look to God, because He can be the one who brings us out of it. And you know, when you get depressed or discouraged or frustrated or angry or miserable or whatever you find yourself in, pity party, any kind of a negative thing, where do we really ultimately have to turn? We can turn to people to give us a little encouragement sometimes, and that might help some. But really, when you understand what we understand, you don't really get relief till you go to God. That's where you find it. So no matter how troubled we are, the eternal is our strength and our shield. Ephesians talks about the shield of faith among the armor of the righteous. Verse 8, the eternal is their strength. And my margin says the strength of salvation. That makes more sense. The eternal is the strength of salvation. And he is the saving strength of his anointed. We are his anointed. We have been baptized, we have had hands laid upon us, and set us aside for salvation, redemption, forgiveness, and to be part of the kingdom of God. So we fit in this, we are His anointed. 
anointed to be kings. They anointed David to become a king. You and I have been anointed to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God. We've been set aside for that purpose. Now, did David immediately become king of Israel after he was anointed? No. Saul was still there. Saul had to be dealt with. David had spears thrown at him. He had all kinds of troubles and trials at the hand of Saul. We have been anointed to become kings and priests in the world tomorrow. And yet Saul is still all around us, isn't he? If you look upon... See, he was head and shoulders above all the people of Israel. So he was an imposing character, just as the Babylon of confusion we have around us and Satan are imposing characters. And we have to fight it day and night, just as David did. And then finally, Saul died, as this world will, and Satan will be bound, and we will be anointed to kings and priests in the world tomorrow. Or not anointed, but glorified and placed as kings and priests. We're already anointed. Now, one point I want to make about that is this one. Once David was anointed, God made it happen. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The only danger is that we leave or forsake him. Once he has anointed us, it's as good as done in his mind. And only we can interfere or contravene that purpose that God has made. He is our strength and our shield. Verse 9 then, a final plea. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Now we are to inherit the earth. We're meek, as he said here. And it is to be forever, isn't it? Psalms were not written with the Old Covenant in mind. They were inspired and written with the New Covenant in mind. They were a prophecy for today. Well, we still have a little time, but I think I'll quit there. We've read some pretty heavy stuff and got plenty to think about, so we'll stop there for today.